Hey guys, so before the next episode of the podcast is played, so this episode, I am absolutely delighted to announce that this episode is sponsored by a company called Let's Get Checked. Let's Get Checked offer home test kits for the likes of vitamin D testing, iron testing, vitamin B12, or any testing any deficiencies, male hormone tests, female hormone tests, testosterone, fertility tests, progesterone, ovarian tests, loads and loads of stuff. I use this company myself and I'm absolutely delighted to announce that they are sponsoring the podcast uh, for the next little while anyway and I have a code and ha- all hands on, on my heart and stuff like that I do have an affiliate link so if you guys do use the link or you use my code which is SWF you will get 30% off your first time purchase. I use these guys myself I get my bloods taken every every quarter or every six months depending on what's going on and the kits come to your house the next day you little you literally prick your finger it cuts out the middleman it saves you spends 50 60 quid of going to the doctor to send that kit to the exact same lab and the kit can be sent to your house if you don't like needles it literally pricks your finger and you put it into a, a tube and it goes to the lab within three to five working days you can then get a call from the nurse getting your results uh, whether it is positive or negative or if you're deficient in anything i've used the the ones are so so good so guys my code is swf or as jane walsh fitness uh, for 30 percent off your first time purchase all the link is in the bottom of the write-up if you want guys want to use those and head over and check them out highly regarded highly regarded company so so happy to be working with them and i'm super super excited so hope you guys enjoy the podcast Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. So I'm so, so excited for today's episode. So this is episode 104. So today's guest is Dr. Sarah Mackay. So Dr. Sarah is an author, an Oxford University educated neuroscientist, educator, presenter, and media commentator, director of the Neuroscience Academy, and is the author of the incredible book, The Women's Brain Book which is the neuroscience of health, hormones, and happiness. And that was the main reason why I'm getting Dr. Mackay on today. So Sarah, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, it's a delight. Thanks for inviting me. So Sarah is all the way over in Sydney and I'm, we we're talking off air and it's a very, very small world that her husband is literally from the same place that I am. Um, so Sarah, I'm going to let you t- tell us your story and how the whole book came about and how you kind of got into this field yourself. Oh, wow. How I got into the field of neuroscience. So I was one of those, I loved school. I was one of those kids who always loved school and loved reading and loved every subject at school. I was complete, my boys would now call me, I've got two boys who are 10 and 12 will call me a sweat. Um, but the, yeah, I just, I, I really liked learning and reading and was always fascinated, particularly by, by the sciences. And when I, I headed off to university and was doing a psychology class in my first year and became really quite interested in the sort of the biology of psychology, I suppose what many people are interested in, you know, why do we kind of think and feel and behave the way we do? This is this is in New Zealand back in the early 90s. And my psychology lecturer recommended I read this fantastic book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by a neurologist called Oliver Sacks. And if, if anyone's read this book, they will know why it is so good. And if you haven't read it, go away and read it. It's got quite an unusual title. He, he wrote these wonderful case studies about the sort of the unusual things that can go wrong with thinking and feeling and behaving when things go wrong with our brain. And, and the, 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 the chap who the book is titled after um, used to mistake everyday objects for other everyday objects and in this instance thought his wife was a hat. Anyway, I read the book, was captivated. And this is 1993, <laughs> so when I was in my first year of uni, and at that time at Otago University, I was at Canterbury University in Christchurch, Otago University in Dunedin, about four hours down the road, they had just created a brand new discipline um, in the university called neuroscience, which pulled together this brain components of pharmacology and physiology, anatomy, psychiatry, psychology. And a friend just kind of casually mentioned it one day when I said that I was really interested in biology and psychology. And I, it was just... That was it, light bulb moment. I, I changed universities um, and to, to do, get a degree in neuroscience. And I went through and I was one of the first cohorts to graduate back in the mid-90s um, with, with this degree in neuroscience. And it's really captivated me 
ever since my my career path has never diverged and I think because it's such a a broad and deep and fascinating field there's so much to it from genes through to sort of behavior and almost society uh, there's just so many paths in um, so I was very fortunate to then like like every kind of Kiwi did Kiwi and Aussie did back in the back in the 90s in the good old days headed off to do my overseas experience and work in a pub and um but I managed to get a scholarship to Oxford University while I was working in the pub, which was quite was 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 quite good to study um, a PhD. I did a master's and then a PhD in neuroscience um, in Oxford, which again was was fantastic. Um, and and there I became very interested in these this concept of um, how the brain is sculpted and shaped by the experiences we have and how much of the brain's wiring is determined by genes and how much by environment, sort of nature, nurture. Um, and that interest has carried me through. I met, um, that's where I met my Irish husband, who's a, who's a Dublin boy. He was studying economics. We met over a bottle of gin at a party in Oxford. And um, we decided after, after a few years that Sydney might be a nice sunny place to live. So we came out here for a year. We told his Irish mum that we were coming to Sydney for a year. And that was in 2002. <laughs> So 18 years later, um, it's, you know, we haven't shifted. Um, and I suppose that was, you know, sort of, eight, as I said, 18 years ago. And over that time, I did a number of postdoc sort of research projects. Again, very much interested in how the brain changes in response to experiences. In particular, I looked at spinal cord injury. Um, and then about sort of 10 or 12 years ago now, I made a shift out of academic research into science communications because I felt that academia was taking me down a path where I had to narrow my focus down so much I became an expert in almost nothing and I had FOMO about all of the other bits of neuroscience I was missing out on. Uh, so I um, made the leap into science communications and, and kind of worked within healthcare and medical communications and education for a while and then set up my own business sort of doing, doing that for myself. Uh, so I've been sort of writing and speaking and doing a bit of TV and a bit of radio and, and sort of dabbling in all of those different media um, forms of communication, still with my heart and soul embedded in the neuroscience textbooks and, and the academic research, but looking at how we can you know, take some of these ideas out of the lab and make it relevant in people's lives. Um, and I still, all of these years later, from 1993 until now, um, there is there is nothing that has kind of captivated my interest as much as that kind of those those Oliver Sacks stories really did. And how did the, the the idea for the book come about? Because it's it's such a, an interesting topic. Yeah, so um, I never really had a book in me because after my PhD thesis, I think I'm still in recovery all these years later. So I was rung up honestly one day by, by a book publisher and this isn't what normally happens to people but she rang up and said do you want to write a book and I went no not really but she was quite charismatic and persuasive so we met anyway and I said I haven't got any ideas and she said what have you ever written for an audience that has resonated with them and that was that was easy because at the time I was writing for the ABC here in Australia <clears throat> and I'd written an article on menopause and brain fog so if any of your listeners are perimenopausal or menopausal women or their mothers or sisters or wives or whatnot are, um, it's often a time when you can become a bit fuzzy and forgetful and emotional and a lot of women worry that it's the first sign of Alzheimer's or dementia, but actually it's just the kind of the fluctuations of hormones unsettling everything, including your sleep quite a lot. Um, we had a huge outpouring to that article. And so my um, book publisher turned around and said, well, why don't you write a book about menopause? And I was like, because I'm 40 and just did not seem like anything that would possibly ever happen to me. Um, I'm 45 now, you know, time ticks on. <laughs> Seems a little bit more re realistic now. But then she said, well, what about pregnancy? Is baby brain a thing? And I was like, baby brain? No, it's not a thing. I'm from New Zealand. We have female prime ministers. We don't do baby brain. And then I realized that I'd, you know, been absolutely immersed in the world of neuroscience for all these, you know, 20 odd years, 25 years, was the owner and operator of a female body and brain. And I, that was one path of neuroscience I hadn't actually gone down yet. Um, you know, the, these, these various transitions that we go through 
in life by virtue of the fact that we have female biology, so puberty and the menstrual cycle, pregnancy, menopause, what is it about these that shape and sculpt our brain? Is, that, is, it, is it just down to hormones? Is it, is it something else entirely? And so the book was really sort of an exploration through the lifespan looking at these, these, these life events. Yeah, from from working with women on a daily basis, I think I don't think a lot of girls in particular or women in particular understand their bodies. I don't think enough's done in kind of like schools and stuff and in order to educate people on on how their bodies work. Because I know I was doing consultations yesterday with a lady in particular, and she I was I was talking about how at different stages of the the cycle and stuff like her appetite, how to fuel herself a little bit more never heard any of it ever before and i was a bit flummoxed and i was kind of like this is coming from a male perspective i thought this would be kind of potentially put through the school curriculum yeah um, you get taught you get taught biology and you get taught about puberty and you get taught about menstrual cycles well, i mean i certainly did in new zealand in the you know when i was growing up in the 80s and 90s and i had a very open mom and i went to a girls school and it was all very empowering and informative and educational um but i think it's just one of the many things that you, you kind of learn about. And, and, I'm, and it was never um, taught to me in a, in a um, I suppose, it was, it was very much taught in, here's, here's the biology, but there's lots of other biology we can learn. And let's just kind of move on and go and save the world. So there was never a really strong focus on that. But, but I am coming at it from the perspective of someone who was always fascinated in biology. So perhaps... Um, those ideas have been embedded within me a little bit more. I think different people in different parts of the world have learned or taught or been taken on board a lot of teachings about female biology, um, particularly female reproductive biology in, di in different ways. Certainly in New Zealand growing up in the 80s and 90s, it was taught explicitly in schools. I'm not sure whether it was in Ireland. Probably less likely to be. I'm not sure. And so then if it wasn't taught in a school, then you're relying either on having a parent who might have told you. Um, I certainly also had a very open mum. Lots of people don't. And then you're relying on what books, if you're not a reader, or you're relying on magazines, or you're relying on what your friends were telling you. And I suppose there's also quite a lot of shame around some of these discussions and some of these aspects. And so people have perhaps in some places traditionally shied away from wanting to understand and talk about um, girly things um it's like let's just let's just as best to brush that under the rug and and, and and not talk about that so I think it's it's interesting to to understand sort of the, the this the backgrounds that lots of people are coming from in terms of how well they've been educated around their health or not it's interesting you mentioned the word shame because I had a lady who is a yogi but she specializes in she does like a tantric yoga but she has like uh, sex online workshops and stuff like that. And she's trying to get rid of the shame because Ireland is renowned for being quite a, quite a Catholic country or was. Uh, now it's a little bit more multi-denominational, but she's doing really, really well to kind of get rid of that whole shame thing. And that's her big thing. Um, but one of the things that kind of the taboo that kind of can come up is the, the difference between the male and the female brain is, is is it true or is it not true that they're kind of like, are the brains the same size or do males have bigger brains or females have bigger brains uh, or what is the actual, the truth behind it? Good question. So if you took like a hundred blokes and a hundred women, hundred men and a hundred, hundred biological men and a hundred biological women, and I'm going to use the word woman and female interchangeably here just because that's what I'm going to do to make it easier going forward. But if you took a hundred men and a hundred women and put them in a room the, on average, men would be a bit bigger than women. They'd be pretty bit taller, but there might be some tall women and some short little guys. Um, so if you were to look at their brains, the men's brains might be on average a bit bigger because that, but the, the, the size of their brain reflects the size of their body. So as you start off as a little baby and then you get older and older and older, your brain kind of grows um, and it sort of stops growing once and, and size once you reach your teenage years. But that's that sort of size is reflected in, in, in body size. So when it comes down to it, that's all that matters. But I think we need to be quite careful when we think about does, does size always matter? Because when it comes to the brain, it doesn't always matter. When we go through childhood our brains are growing but when we go through our teenage years so between ages you know when you hit puberty through to your mid-20s parts of your brain actually gets 
get thinner. The, the cortex are kind of wrapping around you know, the outside of you, the grey wrinkly part that you would look at, especially in your prefrontal cortex, gets thinner. So it's even, you could say it's shrinking in a way as you get more mature. So as the connections kind of become more streamlined, the ones you don't need get pruned away, the brain almost shrinks slightly. So, but, but that is kind of happening alongside the development of various cognitive skills and social skills and emotional skills. So as we are getting better at performing those tasks, the brain is kind of refining its structure. So size doesn't always correlate to function when it comes to the brain either. You mentioned, I've heard you mention, like, even though men may have like a bigger hands, doesn't mean that they're on a better with their hands. Yeah, well, and, and, I, and I suppose that's the thing. Like if we were to, because I mean, the question is, a male and female brain's different. And, and I think, well, it's a little bit like saying, is the male body different to the female body? Um, I mean, we've all got heads and arms and hands and legs. Our genitals are quite different. We have secondary sexual characteristics, which are slightly different. But we've got feet and we've got hands and we've got fingers. And like we might use our hands in the same way, but men's might be slightly differently shaped to women's. So if we kind of zoom in on the brain and look at the structure of the brain, it's kind of similar in that respect and that the vast majority of it looks almost identical. So you couldn't put a brain... Um, take it out of someone's skull and place it on a, you know, the, the bench in the lab and look at it and determine if it was male or female. And you also probably couldn't scan someone's brain and go, that's a male brain and that's a female brain. What we've got to do is we sort of have to start kind of digging down deeper and deeper and start looking at some of the functional connectivity with some of the circuits. And by and large, they're pretty similar as well. Some of the, the the differences that do exist are usually reasonably minor, and they are often in regions of the brain that are involved with reproduction. For example, women have circuitry which controls ovulation. Men, of course, don't need or have therefore have circuitry that um, is, is is controlling ovulation. So we start to see little differences like that. You can then take it, I suppose, this the sort of the step further and go. Um, what sort of behaviours emerge, what cognitive skills differ between males and females. And again, it's really, really hard to find any clear-cut differences once you start looking at various um, attributes. There are some skills which are um, women will score a bit better at than men. Like the, if you had 100 women and 100 men, the average score of the women would be slightly better than the average score of the men. And and women, that often is things like verbal memory recall. Here's, you know, um, 10 objects to kind of keep in your mind's eye. How many of them can you remember an hour later? Um, or perhaps some kind of verbal gymnastics, like how many words can you name beginning with the letter T? Um, men, on the other hand, if you had 100 men and 100 women, would tend to score on average better at some tasks which involve mentally rotating an object in your mind's eye. So if you looked at a piece of you know, Lego from this angle, what would it look like from the other angle? And men, on average, are better at that than women, but lots of women are better at that than some men. Um, so again, we've got to, when we look at population differences, occasionally we see differences between the mean but often we see masses of overlap. And so I think we need to start asking more sophisticated and nuanced questions when we're saying, are they different, rather than which specific difference are we interested in exploring? Are we interested in exploring you know, emotional autobiographic recall? Or are we interested in, um, I don't know, um, reaction speed? Are we interested in you know, maze finding ability? Are we interested in verbal recall? Um, and then we've got to look to see um, how different are those differences? And often we don't we don't see a lot of difference. Um, the, then the next kind of question in when you get a bit deeper into the kind of analysis and thinking is, if we see a difference, if a difference does exist, where does that arise from? Is that was it? When it kind of goes back to what my original PhD questions were about, is that coming about because it's innate, it's genetic, it's wired in from before birth, or is that something that is learned? Um, and often in humans, it's really hard to tease, tease those differences out because, of course, babies are born into a gendered world. The first question anyone asks is, is it a boy or is it a girl when they're born? And often nowadays we know whether they're a boy or a girl before they're born and we start rightly or wrongly, depending on um, you know, what your intentions are, treating them quite differently, whether they're boys or girls. 
So their experiences are going to be slightly different. And we know fundamentally that experience shapes and sculpts various aspects of the brain as well. So it gets quite hard to start teasing out if the differences do exist, how large are they and what's the origin of those differences? No, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I think one of the kind of the, the, the taboos that I, I mentioned to one of my colleagues that um that you were coming on the topic that we we're going to talk about, and they kind of asked me to kind of ask a question about it, the truth behind uh, females being better at multitasking compared to lads. Is that a truth or is that a I myth? Think, I think that that's often used to try and you know justify a woman having to cook dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, look, I don't really think anyone's very good at multitasking. If you were to do a, do a true test of multi, multitasking ability, the true test of that is to, um, it, it's really about can you pay attention, can you can you cognitively focus on more than one task at a time? This isn't about being able to go for a run while listening to a podcast. That's not multitasking because you when you're going for a run, you don't have to consciously think about moving your arms and legs and feet and your heart rate and all of that um multitasking really is about can you switch your cognitive focus um can you hold more than one thing in your cognitive focus and typically you can't you can't for example um listen to a podcast and absorb that information whilst having a in-depth conversation and debate with someone you simply can't do those two things at once you can't receive information and have a discussion with someone what happens is your attention shifts between the two so you would go from the conversation back to the podcast from the conversation back to the podcast so it's essentially what you're doing is attention shifting um, and as far as I know most people cannot do that and there are a few people that um, are kind of what we call like super taskers who do have that ability to be able to hold more than one thought kind of in, in, them, in mind at once um, and I'm not entirely sure whether there's any any, any sort of um, sex or gender difference in, in that space. But simply because women can, you know, hold down jobs and raise babies, I wouldn't call that multitasking. Um, I would just call that kind of a bit of grit and determination. Yeah, well, I think that's what I think that that that's what I thought anyway. With yeah. the fact that it is literally, well, I, like... I find a lot of the time when we we have these sort of words that we like multitasking what is that and and I go well I'm going to put my neuroscience hat on and let's look at that from what we understand about what is multitasking when we're talking about it in neuroscience terms and we can go away and we can have a look at the data and typically it doesn't always support the gender stereotypes that's really interesting um I'm glad you've uh, debunked that myth uh, for a lot of people um in, in relation to kind of the PMS um that's one of these one of these things that kind of some people can there's also sometimes there's a taboo attached to it as well with the PMS brain and all that kind of stuff like how does PMS impact on kind of mood and thinking for for girls coming up to certain times of the month month. that is a very good question and um wasn't a question that I actually set out intentionally to explore in the book but what I was interested in was looking to see how our brain changes across the menstrual cycle. So if you're between puberty and menopause and you're not on the pill and you're not pregnant, most healthy women will be having a a, a sort of a monthly, roughly monthly cycle um, with these fluctuations of ovarian hormones, which sort of are feeding back to the brain. There's this brain ovarian conversation going on. And I was interested to see how does the brain change in response to these hormones. And there are and rats and mice at least, because we have been able to study their brains in detail. Um, adult humans don't really kind of like having bits of their brain removed to look be looked at under the microscope when we're kind of alive. So we tend to look at the animals and, and we see as they sort of go through their estrus cycles that some of the structures of the neurons themselves in particular regions of the brain do change in response to, to, to say, fluctuations of estrogen. But I thought, well, does that have any impact on how women think or how women feel and lots of this is actually reasonably well studied a lot of people have gone in and done cognitive tests on women a whole sort of battery of cognitive tests at different times of the month mapped on to different levels of hormones going up and down and very little evidence is is showing that there's any influence on cognitions the ability to think and make decisions reason 
um, find your way through a maze, remember a list of words, rotate a 3D object in your mind's eye, all those very kind of higher order thinking tasks. Hormones don't seem to influence them at all. And I was kind of surprised about that, but, but quite pleased because that means that, hooray, women can like hold down jobs um, between puberty and menopause. So who knew that? Um, the other the other question I then thought, well, emotions, <laughs> they must be different because we are, depending on where you grow up, perhaps what family you grow up in, um, you know, there's there's a lot of storytelling around this idea that women are on this hormone, hormonal, emotional roller coaster, and we kind of can't get off it. Um, and we all carry a you know a different sort of perspective on on that idea. And um, and so I thought, well, I'll go and have a look in the literature, looking at this idea of PMS because it's kind of quite commonly discussed at that time of the month. Women get cranky and angry, and they're not in control of their emotions. So my first question I asked was, it was a very simple question, what percentage of women suffer from PMS? And I found a meta-analysis, which is kind of the, the gold standard of research because it pulls together lots and lots of data from lots of different studies. And in this instance, it was looking at reported rates of PMS globally, and it broke it down into different countries. And I could not believe when I read this paper, because it turns out that the reported rate of PMS differed widely, wildly and widely, depending on what country you're in. So France and Switzerland, it was about 10%. You go into Spain, it was around 30 or 40%. Um, other parts of the world were kind of up around 50, 60, 70. And then you go to some countries in the Middle East, Iran in particular, was around 90%. So we had 10 from 10% to 90%, depending on where in the world you lived. But it didn't really show any clear pattern France and, and uh, Spain were quite different. Um, so it wasn't kind of a that much, you know, it was it was it varied by country, not necessarily, um, you, could, you, you couldn't say, oh, well, it was to do with ever, women in the Middle East think this way because there were diff quite big differences between different countries in the Middle East. So I was floored by this because I thought if hormones are the driver to emo women's emotional experience, then why, is it, does it, why does where you live in the world matter? So I started looking into biopsychosocial explanations of this, that is, there's more to women's experiences than hormones. Um, and there's a woman in uh, New Zealand, a, a women's health psychiatrist called Sarah Romans, and I um, started looking into some of her research and spoke to her, and she had wondered exactly the same question. Um, why does it vary so much depending on where you are in the world? And, you know, why do so many women, if they have a negative emotional experience, blame their reproductive status, blame the fact they have hormones, that they are women, as if hormones are a bad thing. And we have a ton of evidence that oestrogen is actually a cognitive enhancer. It makes you healthier and it makes you think clearly and it promotes brain health, particularly during pregnancy. Um, so she designed a study where women were asked, they were given a, an app that popped up and they were asked to record the day of the month, uh, their monthly cycle, um, their emotional status, and they were given positive and negative and neutral emotions to choose from, um, how stressed they were feeling, how physically well they were, and how socially supported they felt. And after she crunched many hundreds of cycles from hundreds of women, there was no significant um correlation between day of the month and mood <laughs> it didn't matter whether you're premenstrual whether you're on your period whether it was you're ovulating that bore no relationship no statistically significant relationship to mood in fact the very significant drivers of mood were stress were phys physical good health and were how socially supported women felt which is a very different story to what we are told now that's not to say um some women, there were some women, maybe one or two and 20 of the women showed a very clear emotional mapping onto their, um, the day of the month, but 18 out of those 20 women did not. In fact, it was the other influences. It was how socially supported they were feeling, was life sort of stressing them out, with the other physical um, problems that were contributing to mood, simply not hormones. The key about this study is that the women were not told it was a study on PMS. When you re repeat that study, you replicate that study, and you say to the woman, this is a study, we're really interested in PMS symptoms, you would get very, very different data because you're priming the woman to, you know, the, the skewing the data almost by, by priming them into thinking, well, this is a study on PMS. So I spoke at great length 
um, I've, I've talked to so many people about this. I've had some enormous pushback on these ideas. And I mean, they're not my ideas. I just want the research is showing um, that women's experiences of emotions are real. They're not in your head. You're not making them up. But there are often, um, you know, we may... We may have been told if you're feeling grumpy at a particular time of the month, it's to do with your hormones when it could just be your husband and put the bins out. It's almost as if we kind of look for the easiest, you know, hook to hang our hat on as the answer for how we're feeling instead of sort of stepping back as Sarah Roman said, we need to, you know, educate women on all of the various influences. Hormones are one voice in the crowd of how we feel. Um, and, and I think that that's really great because it gives women a whole lot more agency over their emotional well-being. It educates people on all of the various influences on, on how we could be feeling on any particular day. Um, if we constantly blame hormones, well, we can't always do much about them. Um, I think this is a really important study because it, it highlights you know, the, the bias, cycle, and psycho and social, the kind of the mind, body, social aspects of, 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 of health outcomes. That's such an interesting study because that would probably go against of what a lot of ladies would probably have been taught and brought up on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that that's perhaps where the cultural differences come from. So much of well, I'm feeling cranky. Oh, well, I'm going to feel cranky this time next month too. We can so easily influence our emotional state and we can do that in advance if we are primed to expect to feel a certain way. Um, And I think the emotional experiences are absolutely real. And in some women, it's so important to realise that they are influenced deeply by hormones. But it's about being a bit more reflective and thoughtful about what is the influence on your hormone on your emotional status that day um and often it's something that we can do something about you can make sure that your social support networks are a bit stronger you can look at your physical health maybe you're not getting enough sleep or exercise your diet's crap um perhaps it's 2020 and you're massively stressed out and you need to find ways in which to learn to buffer stress a bit better in your life rather than defaulting to those hormones yeah, I think a lot of people will, yeah, can default to that rather than kind of looking at the external stressors. Like 2020 has been a bit of a mess of a year. Like I can't believe it's all nearly September already. I'm so worried like, you're going to get to 2021. It's not going to get any better. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But I think it's important, so important for all of us to know, like it is so stressful and it's been such a horrible year, no matter where you are in the world, that there's so many things that we can do um to you know and I think perhaps it's just kind of makes my case for me we aren't all PMSing this year the world is not all suffering from PMS in 2020 it's a really stressful uncertain time and um the external stresses the lack of social support we've all kind of found ourselves in um you know perhaps a lot of people aren't as physically healthy as they could be because they can't kind of get out and do the things they normally do it's all contributing to lower mood um so it's a, it's a useful tool <laughs> to educate people with um, and also a great time to, you know, take a look at what, what are some of the steps and actions that you can take to make sure that you stay, you know, mentally well as well as physically well. You mentioned about lower mood um, and like some of the research out there show that women struggle more with kind of depression and anxiety than men. Is this research true? Um, and why Why would you say that is, if it is true? Um, is this research true? Well, I, I hope that the research that I've included in my book is, is the best out there. The, the, the data does support the fact that women are diagnosed with anxiety and depression more than men. But the key is, are women diagnosed with it because they are more likely to put their hands up and ask for help? Women are far more likely to visit the GP because we're all used to visiting the GP all the time versus blokes who aren't as do, doing that doing that as often so there are we, we can have a you know a debate about is it a matter of diagnosis men are just more stoic and aren't you know as depressed or are there other factors that are contributing to that apart from simply the, the you know the, the stats being skewed 
um, that way. Um, and so if we, we kind of start to unpack that a little bit more, we can look at what I, what I say biopsychosocial, or as I talk about in the book, bottom-up, outside-in, or top-down influences. So bottom-up is like your biology, outside-in is the world around you, and top-down are your thoughts and feelings. And when we start looking at that, we do start to see gender differences and sex differences in terms of um, there is there are some biological differences which would predispose girls and women, particularly post-puberty, to be more vulnerable to depression and anxiety as a result of different responses to stress. Um, we have a slightly different um, way in which cortisol stimulates cortisol receptors in our bodies versus men. Um, it's not necessarily as um, strong and powerful as it is in men, and, and there's some thoughts that they that may be something to do with that. Um, often women don't feel, if you want to kind of take more of a sort of a gendered top-down approach, women don't often feel as empowered. They may feel that there's less options. You know, they may not feel as valued in the workplace or in the home. There's those kinds of influences. So once you sort of start unpacking the influences which can result in anxiety and depression, you do start to see why there may be some average, average differences in there. Interestingly, if we look at kids, prior to puberty, we tend to see that anxiety in particular, because that's much more common in kids than depression, um, numbers are pretty even. Um, you'd see equal numbers of boys and little boys and little girls being diagnosed with childhood anxiety. Once you hit puberty, there does appear to be a bit of a deviation. And, you know, post-teenage girls are more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety and depression than boys. Boys are more likely to show other types of um, mental health issues, they may be more likely to um, go down the path of, say, drug and alcohol abuse, which could be categorised as a mental health disorder. It may just be different ways of kind of coping with stress that emerge that we then label in different ways. So the research that I've included in the book, I hope, is, is correct, but I um, try and unpack it. So I'm not just sort of saying, guys, don't get depressed and anxious because absolutely they do. There's just different influences which may result in slightly different numbers. That's really interesting, the fact that you brought up the fact that lads don't really go to the GP as much as girls, so that, that the research may not be out there, or there may, may not be as many kind of people just talking about it as much as, I think that, that there is still work to do with lads and kind of yeah. the whole mental health side of things, and as, yeah, you've kind of, as you've kind of mentioned about the kind of lads will be more tendency to kind of go down the substance abuse or the yeah. alcohol abuse yeah. rather than females. Not that the females don't do it either, but lads, yeah. would that would be their default yeah. rather than kind yeah. of actually having a proper conversation and you see you, you see these outcomes you know kind of play out all the way through the the, the sort of the lifespan um which is which is really i think is, is really fascinating i mean but there's this massive kind of i don't know what ireland's like but here in australia and in new zealand certainly and and in the last sort of five and ten years there's been a huge focus on men's mental health and boys' mental health, which I think is exceptional. You know, we've got all blacks in New Zealand talking about it. Last night, even here on the TV in Australia, we had a rugby league player talking about mental health. So the conversations around men's mental health, and particularly suicide numbers, which are appalling in this part of the world, um, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of conversations around that. I guess right now, there's, there's a lot of awareness and a lot of discussion. Sometimes the problem is... Um, is that um, then translating into people getting the help that they need or being still brave enough to actually ask for help and then to be able to get the help? And right now, lots of services are kind of, you know, running on their bare bones. Um, and then also, you know, not every um, young guy out there comes from, you know, a cultural background where he feels comfortable to even talk about that. So there might be awareness raising in some sectors of society and not others. So um, I think, you know, women's health has done a really good job. There's some aspects of men's health which have got work to do, but there's also some really fantastic organisations and blokes out there doing doing really good stuff. Um, the problem's often not so much the awareness now. I think we're starting to see a bit of a gap between the service provision. Um, yeah, and taking yeah. action and being able yeah, to implement yeah. that into people's lives. Yeah. I, I would I would 100% agree with you on that because yeah. there are so many more people, like as you said, the All Blacks, yeah. there are a lot more uh, people like 
musicians and people coming out yeah. talking about the mental health side of things, but yeah. there definitely is a, a, a gap yeah. uh, in yeah. relation how to implement or how yeah. to for someone to yeah. go about it and how yeah. to reach out to. And is, I also, I also think there needs to be, you know, it's not like you suddenly cross this line into deep depression and you could only get brought back up out of it because of finding a really good psychiatrist who's going to give you psychotherapy plus perhaps drug treatment, plus psychosocial support. Um, it's it's really also teaching people a lot of the, 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 the sort of first aid skills, the mental health first aid skills, if you sort of start heading down that path, whether you're male or female, so in ways that people are going to want to take on board. And so that and we understand all the various influences that can sort of head you down that path and what to do before you get down so far you can't pull yourself back up. Um, so, again... The, the, I think over time, and I hope over time, some of the conversations will mature a bit, will become more accessible. And also people will realise how many resources there are out there. For example, there's some really great therapy tools online. Um, there's lots of ways you can access various forms of mental health support. Certainly here in Australia, I can't speak for Ireland, um, you know, that there's a lot of people doing some really good work here. Again, it's often the gap between the awareness and then finding finding what you need. Yeah, and I think that I think that's exactly. I think people just need to know where to go, but how to go about it is yeah, is, yeah. is 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 a yeah. massive thing. Because it's all well and good putting all these ad campaigns yeah. out, but there's no real call to action at the at the end of it. Yeah, is is the main thing. You you've alluded to uh, the amazing lady that is the New Zealand Prime Minister and pregnancy <laughs> brain and baby brain. Uh, that lady is leading the uh, the charge at the minute with how to cope with what's going on. Yeah. Uh, compared to uh, some other politicians, which <laughs> shall not be named. Um, it, you meant you already said like pregnancy brain isn't the thing, but where did that kind of taboo? I can't <laughs> just send. Uh, I do not speak for Jacinda's brain or her uterus, but we're very proud. Kiwi women are very proud. <laughs> we right, can't so. like to think that we're related to her in some way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, how like where does the whole thing of kind of pregnancy brain? the idea come from and is it a thing really which i think you've already said no again it's a fun it's a it, i i and i kiwis are pretty pragmatic just we kind of just get on with it which in some ways has not been useful for many people perhaps with mental health disorders because it's, it's very much growing up as like pull your socks up and let's just get on with getting stuff done um and so there's a real pragmatism in new zealand certainly um which has great benefits but also some drawbacks um baby brain was something that i had never heard of and even i never heard of until after i had my kids my own boys who are now as i said 10 and 12 so um again i i think there's a strong cultural storytelling um around this um but if anyone has heard of it, some people talk about it, baby brain, as being, well, you are pregnant, that you, again, a bit similar to maybe menopause, you become forgetful and distracted and emotional and all of these types of, you know, um, emotional, distractible, brain foggy issues. Some people use it to refer to the time after the baby's being born, being, being born when you're, you're raising toddlers, um, raising newborns, raising kids. Um, now, this has been this is a really well studied area of, of neuroscience because we've got sort of nine months in which we can get women into the research lab. We can do all kinds of cognitive testing on them quite safely. Interestingly, um, if you look at human uh, pregnant people, human pregnant women, and if we also look to the animal kingdom who do not read books on what to expect when they're expecting, um, when careful studies are done of both, we find that pregnancy does not in any way impact cognition and in many instances actually improves cognition, which would also fit with the, the theory that we understand that oestrogen, which you get sky high levels of oestrogen, you get about a thousand fold dose of oestrogen during a pregnancy than you get the entire rest of your life. Oestrogen is a cognitive enhancer, certainly in the animal kingdom who don't take on board cultural stories. Um, Oestrogen makes pregnant mammals much cognitively smarter and sharper and more capable. Um, and certainly um, once so you've got a, you know, a, a mouse or a rat in the lab that's had a litter of pups, um, they retain that cognitive enhancement for their lifespan and in fact live slightly longer, healthier, um, more um, lives that are more resilient to brain ageing as well. So pregnancy in the animal kingdom is a good thing to have 
have happened to you. Um, and uh, us, us humans are slightly more complex than that, but certainly the vast majority of cognitive studies that have been done in women, comparing, say, a whole group of pregnant women to a group of non-pregnant women, or looking perhaps at women before, during, and after their pregnancy, don't typically find any cognitive differences. When differences are found in some studies, typically it's only in the last trimester of pregnancy, and any woman who's had a pregnancy will tell you that at the end it is really hard to get a good night's sleep because you are so uncomfortable. So it is more likely that any cognitive differences that we find, and in particular the cognitive problems that we would see in women with a newborn, is not due to hormones, it's due to lack of sleep. And sleep is so fundamentally important for getting us through the day. You have one bad night's sleep, you feel crap. If you have that consistently, it does start over time to impact your cognition. So we think that that's probably what is more the case. And interestingly, I remember um, a year or so ago, I was doing a, um, a radio interview um, about this with the radio presenter um, as a gay man who had just adopted, um, I'm not sure where actually whether they were his biological children or not, twin babies. And he was like, I'm really tired. And it's not hormones. Um he was, you know, he was feeling a bit cognitively fuzzy and, he's, and, and, you know, he didn't give birth to these babies. So he couldn't blame the hormones. He could only do what you would more sensibly do, blame the lack of sleep. So, again, I think it's about understanding what the data is showing us and then, try, and then reflecting on how useful that can be in terms of the stories we tell ourselves and the stories we're going to go on and tell our sons and daughters as well um, as, they're, as they're growing up. What kind of stories are they going to take on board? We need to be kind of flipping the switch on this whole baby brain story and, and going, actually, pregnancy makes you smarter, it makes you sharper, it makes you more capable. Um, but, you know, you do get more tired, you do get achy, particularly at the end. And so, you know, let's Let's treat that for what it is instead of, again, blaming these hormones for everything that goes wrong. It's really interesting that sleep seems to have come up a couple of times in what we've talked about, yeah. kind of when people are going through perimenopause, menopause, yeah. pregnancy. Mm-hmm. It can definitely overlap with mental health as well. I know yeah. myself when I was doing face-to-face BT and getting up at, I don't even know, it's hard to think about it anymore, five o'clock in the morning, half four in the morning for, for clients and stuff compared to now even though it's like an, an extra hour and a half but i'm going to bed earlier yeah so i'm getting that extra probably two hours in bed a night and the difference yeah. in mood energy food choices training yeah. energy all that kind of stuff is yeah. is huge yeah. i think people under underrate it they're too oh. busy going on tiktok <laughs> for sure for sure i think it's it's one of um, our great superpowers and it is completely underestimated in terms of health and well-being, brain health, mental health, fitness, as you say, nutrition choice, everything. And I'm I'm like the world's best sleeper. I could win gold medals at the Olympics for sleeping. And I also, <laughs> I also nap a lot as well. I have short strategic afternoon naps. If I feel a bit sleepy, I set my alarm. So I'm a bit of a sleep kind of connoisseur. And interestingly, I talk to occasionally if I meet people who strategically nap, as I call it, like myself, and say, do you sleep well at night? And they're like, yeah, I love to sleep. So there's a definitely, I have a strong positive association with sleep. Um, but, you know, we've lost, we've just lost respect for the fact that we are part of mother nature. We are animals too that evolved on this earth that spins on its axis around the sun and, and our enti- every cell in our body evolved. And it was this, you know, reflecting this light dark cycle. And if we aren't honoring that, <laughs> everything goes out of whack. Um, but, you know, we live in these, this modern world, like TikTok, as you say, I've never used TikTok. Um, but I, I don't know, I'm not too old, but I kind of don't really get how it works. I, I've never I used it in my life. I don't so know, I, I've seen people do it. Um, Netflix, I don't know, scrolling on your iPhone, whatever. Um, even just LED lights after the sun's gone down. It's so damaging to our biology. Uh, I think we've we've lost kind of respect for that. There's also some interesting research that um, I've come across in the last sort of six months, which I think has also proven to me incredibly useful during 2020. Um, we, we know that one of the best ways we can um, ensure that we keep on top of stress um, and anxiety is to, is to get decent sleep. We can kind of hack that as well using sunrise and sunset. So I don't know whether you've, you've, you're familiar with these ideas that... Um, it's not just 
nighttime and getting dark that sends signals to our brain that it's time to get ready to sleep. But our, we also have neurons in the retina of our eye which feed directly into the, the um, kind of circadian clock part of our brain that can pick up the chromatic shifts of sunrise and sunsets, the differences between the blues and oranges that you see at sunrise and sunset. Um, and those, those signals are also really important for helping set a lot of our, um, our, our circadian rhythms and in particular stress responses. Now, of course, it's, a mu it's much harder when you're like, it's January in Dublin, because I've been there and it's, you know, you might get the sun peeking up across the horizon at 9am and then leaving again at 2.30. But if you can, at some point in uh, that natural sunrise, sunset time, get, get a bit of that get a bit of that that kind of chromatic shift um, into, into your mind, into your brain, into your body. It's a really good way to help kind of reset um, some of those stress responses in a way that will enable you to react more appropriately. Um, so that's I, something that I've been trying to do is watch a sunrise or a sunset, preferably for me a sunrise um, every day if I can. It's, it's, it's really... Um, it's really useful. And, and it doesn't matter where you live in the world, whether you live in a city or not, the sun will still come up and go down. <laughs> so you can still try and find time to, to observe. It's a nice way to start the day and finish the day as well, if you're yeah. doing it as well. Yeah, yeah. It's nice and it's, nice. It's kind of like a, you know, midsummer and midwinter, you know, I, 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 you know, you have to be a bit sensible about it as well. But um, if it's if it, it's workable, it's a, it's a useful way to help manage your stress responses and also help set you up for a good night's sleep 100 i i have so many more questions but I'm, I'm conscious that you've uh you've another call after after this so where can people find out about the the book and where can they buy it yeah for sure well i think actually in ireland it's called demystifying the female brain so i'm a bit like i like to say i'm a bit like jk rowling with harry potter with different <laughs> titles in different countries but um the UK and our and Irish publishers called it demystifying the female brain. It's kind of like an aquamarine blue, instead of um, in Australia. Apparently, you need to kind of say what it is on the can. It needs to be really obvious for Aussies. Um, so that's why it's the Women's Brain book in Australia. But you can, if you Google Women's Brain or Female Brain and Sarah Mackay, you will find um, you know links to you know, book depository or um, what are some of your bookshops? I don't know whether it's still in the bookshops, actually on the shelves in Ireland anymore. Um, You'll be able to I can have it a look. Amazon. It's definitely on Amazon. Yeah, on Amazon, on Kindle. Um, if they come onto my website, drsarahmackay.com um, forward slash book, you'll find various links to um, different different parts of the world. Um, awesome so what i will do yeah. is i'm going to put the link into the write-up guys so if you want to get the book please do click on that uh sarah thank you so much for giving up so much of your time i know we had a little bit of a boo-boo with the timing organizing <laughs> last week so it's nice we to have a chat uh, sides of the world <laughs> exactly yeah uh, it's not the first time uh that that's happened with someone over the far side of the world with the the time differences yeah. uh so guys if you've enjoyed the episode at all please do tag us up on your story leave a review up on itunes uh, and thank you so much for coming on sarah oh no you're welcome